the passage we're going to look at today is Romans 8, um, chapters, verses 12 to 17. And I would, like, or I would like to invite you to stand as I read the word of God to you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order we may be also glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. During my last semester in seminary, when I was still in seminary in Germany, about five years ago, I faced one of the greatest challenges of my life. And I still remember the day as if it was yesterday. I sat in a library at a Saturday night working on a paper <clears throat> that was due soon. And while I was working, I listened to songs on my headphones. And one of the songs that came up is a song that is called Creed. And um, I listened to the song a gazillion times before that. I heard it a gazillion times. It was never something really special. Maybe some of you know this song. It is a musical version of the Apostles' Creed, this famous creed that most churches in the world agree upon. But this night, everything was different. I don't know why, but while I heard this song, I suddenly started to doubt. I suddenly, I suddenly started to doubt, did, did I really believe that God is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Did I really believe that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son, born of a virgin, suffered, died, crucified, buried, rose, and ascended into heaven? Did I really believe in the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit creates a communion of saints? Did I believe that my sins were forgiven? Did I really believe that I will be resurrected from the dead and that I will live forever? And in this moment, I was sure that all those faithful seminary friends of mine that their sins were surely forgiven. Without a doubt, they will go to heaven. But what about me? I was afraid. Am I a real Christian or am I just fake? And what followed after that was an intense spiritual crisis of months. Um, during this crisis, I not only doubted the reality of my faith, but also the reality of the gospel itself, the trustworthiness of the Bible, and to a certain point, even God. And all of this started because I doubted my own spiritual state. The question whether I really was a Christian was so overwhelming in this moment. 
that my entire life, everything became affected by it, my entire worldview. But in this time, I also remember one of my good friends from seminary constantly telling me that he knew I was a Christian. He said, Mario, I have, I have truly seen you struggle in the faith. I have truly seen you grow. I have truly seen you pray and read your Bible and, and, and fighting to get back to God somehow. But I couldn't believe my friend back then. I, I just couldn't see it. Couldn't see whether I'm a real Christian. And maybe you are sitting here this morning and you have similar questions. Maybe you're struggling with similar thoughts. Am I fake? Is my faith strong enough? Can I really please God with my life? Or am I righteous before God? And if you do so, there's great news. You yourself will never be the one who's real. You yourself will never be strong enough. You yourself will never please God. You will never be righteous in and of yourself. The passage we look at today tells us that it is, that it is the Spirit of God who lives in you who makes you the real thing, who gives you the faith you need, makes you pleasing unto God, and who applies the righteousness to you that you need, the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Jesus the Messiah. What I should have done several years ago and what you should do today is stop looking at yourself as the source and the surety, the assurance for your spiritual life. You will never find any assurance there. It is the leading of Christ's spirit in you that provides true assurance. And um, therefore I have called my sermon, Christ's spirit leads you, the assurance of your righteousness. As you can see in your bulletins, my sermon has three points covering these verses. So talking about verses 12 and 13, we're going to talk about Christ's Spirit leading you and defeating your sins. And in the verses 14 through 16, we will see how Christ's Spirit leads us in crying out to the Father. And in verse 17, we will see how Christ's Spirit leads us in suffering with Christ. So, to the first point, Christ's Spirit leads you in defeating your sins. And before we can jump right into the explanation of this passage, um, there are a few things I would like to address concerning the context of this passage so we can, can get a better understanding of what we're going to see today. Um, and as I was, when I was asked to preach here, I, I went onto the website of your church and I saw that you have this beautiful title for your sermon series, The Righteousness of Another. And throughout this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, he explains what is this righteousness of another and how it relates to God, how it relates to us. And let us just briefly track this thought throughout the, the letter so we can have the important background for this passage today. So in the first three chapters, what Paul tells us is that God is righteous. He's right and just in everything he's doing. He does no wrong, even if it might feel this way to us. But he also tells us that we as humans are not righteous. And the fact we are not righteous is revealed by that we didn't honor God the way he's supposed to be honored. God gave us two kinds of hints about who he is. He gave us nature and creation to show us that he's mighty and powerful. But he also gave us a law 
he revealed himself through us in, in, in word and in deed and in the law, and that should have given us enough hints to see that we have to honor him, but we didn't because we are not righteous. And this ultimately lead to a, led to a conflict and an hostility be between God and humankind because God is righteous, humans are not righteous. So the unrighteous people, they need righteousness so that this hostility can be solved. And in chapter 3 and 4, the apostle tells us how what God did in order to make the unrighteous people righteous. He justified them. That means God himself became a man. Jesus, the Messiah, is, is God with us. And Paul tells us that Jesus took this hostility upon himself, although he himself was righteous because he was God. Now those who believe in this reconciling work with, of Jesus Christ receive his perfect righteousness. It is given to them. And this is the greatest exchange in the history of the universe. Martin Luther, a German monk, for his entire life he thought God was a monster. And once he read Romans 3, he rediscovered this truth of this exchange, and he called it the happy exchange. From that point in his life, he was sure that God is indeed a loving God. That this justification of the unrighteous happens only through faith, that there's nothing he needs to do in order to please God. Jesus did everything on behalf of us. Now, when we enter chapter 5 in the letter to the Romans, Paul addresses a number of problems that the church has. Because it is hard to believe that we are righteous, that we are justified just on the basis of someone else's deeds, just through faith. Isn't that correct? It's hard to believe. What if we sin? Are we still righteous? What if people persecute us? Is God still for us? And Paul addresses all these issues. And he wants to give the church in Rome assurance, assurance that they're not fake, but that they're the real thing. And when we enter chapter 8, he has this beautiful outcry. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The entire passage, Romans 5 through 8, these chapters, but especially the text this morning, is aimed to give us assurance. We need assurance that we are indeed justified because sometimes we, we doubt that, just as I doubted it. And as we approach the passage today, keep that in mind. Paul wants us to have this assurance that we indeed have received the righteousness of another. And this is why at the very center of this passage, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What Paul wants us to see is that if we are children of God, the Holy Spirit works in us. For Paul, having the Spirit of God is, a, is the distinguishing mark of the Christian life. Yes, we have received the righteousness of another, but we have also received the Holy Spirit who works in us now. And in this particular passage, he shows us three different aspects of how the Spirit works and leads us in our lives that can help us see that we are not fake, but that indeed the Spirit of God works in us. And the first one of these aspects is that this Christ's Spirit leads us in the feeding of our sins. So let us read these two verses again. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what is this about? In a nutshell, Paul wants us to understand that it is, defi- it is one of the defining marks of a Christian that he puts sin to death. And of course, Paul isn't the first one to suggest this. It was Jesus himself who's already said that you will recognize a hypocrite by their acts just you, as you recognize a tree by its fruits in the same way you recognize a righteous person by its acts. But how can this give us assurance? How can it give us assurance that we put our sins to death? And maybe you sit here and think, well, I'm struggling with my sin. I have not put every sin in my life to death. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, neither have I. But the question is not so much whether we have put every sin in our life to death in order to be assured that Christ's Spirit works in us. The question is much more whether we have received the ability to put our sins to death. The question is much more whether we have received this ability to fight and struggle against sin. Our righteousness will always remain the righteousness of another, and we will never be completely free of sin in this life. But are we able to fight sin and evil? And what does that have to do with assurance? I, I th- I think the Word of God tells us today that the connection of our, that there's a connection between our ability to fight sin and our justification. And this connection is the work of the Spirit in us. The ability to put sin to death and our justification, are, they go together and they are both present in the Christian life because they are both given to us by the Holy Spirit. Those who have received Jesus' righteousness through faith did so through the work of the Spirit. This is the truth on which Paul bases his entire argument to assure the Romans that they are in fact real Christians. The Spirit is the one who works the happy exchange. Christ is the one who merits the salvation, but the Spirit is the one who gives it to us. He takes it from Jesus and gives it to us. But he does more. The Spirit also unites us with Jesus. He makes us one with Christ. This unity is now ongoing and forever. If you are united to Christ, you will stay united to Christ. This is why Paul says we are in Christ in chapter 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ or who are with Christ. And through this unity we have with, with Christ, we have not only undergone fundamental change from unrighteousness to righteousness through justification, we have also undergone another change, and that is the change from death to life. So the Spirit applies Christ's righteousness, He unites us with Christ, and in this unity we have found new life from death. In the Bible, the word death is often used to describe the state of people who do not believe in Jesus. They are as they say, dead in their sins. What it means is that they are now not physically dead, but they are dead because of their inability to live according to the law that God has given and to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, those who have been united with Christ through the Spirit, and this is everything Paul talks about in Romans 5, those who have been united with Christ through the Spirit, they are not dead 
And why is that? They are alive because they have died to this spiritual death when Jesus died for them. We are not only united to Christ now, we are in fact united to his death and his resurrection too. <clears throat> so when Jesus died, we died with him to this spiritual death. And we also have new resurrection life right now. And again, life here does not only refer to just physical life in opposition to lying dead on the ground, but it means the ability to live according to God's law and to, to believe in Jesus. But remember, it is not about being perfect. It is about the ability to be able to put sin to death. So listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because God's Spirit unites us to Christ, we can actually put our sin to death. Therefore, as I said, the ability to put sin to death and our justification go together because they're both given to us by God's Holy Spirit. One is not the cause for the other, but they both come to us only through faith. We don't, we're not getting justified because we have put sin to death. They're both given to us. We do not receive justification because of our deeds. We receive the ability to do good and to, do, and to be justified only through faith. So when Paul tells us in Romans 8.13 that if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, he literally means what he says. To live according to the flesh is another word for sinning, for rebelling against God, for upholding this hostility between the righteous God and the unrighteous people. Whoever does so will die both spiritually or is already dead spiritually and he will ultimately die forever. Because he was never united to Christ, he never died to death, he never died to sin, he never died to his inability to do good. On the other hand, those who are united to Christ now have received resurrection life. They have received the ability to put their sins to death, to overcome spiritual death when Jesus died for them. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at when he says in Romans 8.12, So then, brothers, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Because we have died with Christ, we have no obligation to sin. The obligation is gone. We are free to live this new life. But we must be reminded of that. Think about a former slave shortly after the abolition of slavery. So after being enslaved for his entire life, he knew only a life of servanthood towards his owner. Now imagine the mental power this owner must have had over the slave even after the abolition of slavery. Every time he would meet him on the street, he could have just shouted, boy, come over here, 
and the former slave would have had a hard time resisting because he was, he was for his entire life, he was trained to jump. He was, it, was, it became part of his DNA to some degree. But n now he doesn't need to anymore. There's no need for him legally to obey his owner. But he must be reminded, no, you're free. There's no need for you to obey your old owner anymore. And in the same way, Paul wants to remind us that we have no obligation to sin anymore. Sin might be our old owner, but we don't need to obey sin. We are not servants of sin anymore. We are servants of God. And not only that, we're not only able to put our sin to death, we're also obligated to put our sin to death. So honoring God through a godly life is thus both an ability for the Christian but also an obligation. Adolf Schlatter, that is a German commentator on the Bible whom I really like to read, wrote beautifully, what God's grace put to death should remain dead and the life it created is to be desired. In a similar way, Paul talks about Christians as those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So just as the former slave wanted to be free and might have had some troubles to sometimes live out his freedom, so the Christian wants to live a godly life, puts sin to death, even though sometimes he doesn't succeed. And if you're here this morning and you ask yourself, am I fake? Is my belief in God real? Am I a true Christian? Then also ask yourself whether you hate your own sin and fight against it. Do you want to be free from it? Do you put sin to death through the power of the Spirit in you? Remember, this is not about perfection, but the right direction and sometimes very, very small and slow victories. You can also ask others, did I change? Did Christ change me and my behavior? Maybe you yourself has, have realized that there are things in your life which you don't enjoy anymore. You might have enjoyed them when you were not yet a Christian. I think another significant point here is the question whether you want to be corrected by your pastors or by other Christians. Do you listen to good spiritual advice? Do you study God's word in order to have a guideline for the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act? It should, however, never be forgotten that it is not us who make all of this happen. It is through Christ's spirit and by God's grace that we can have this new life. We didn't come up with this new life ourselves. This ability, we didn't create this ability ourselves. We cannot fulfill this obligation on our own. Christ's spirit is the one who leads us in defeating our sins. And this defeating gives us assurance that we are, in fact, Christians. This leads me to my second point. Christ's spirit leads you in crying out to the Father. So the second distinguishing mark of a Christian, which Paul shows us here, is a new relationship. It's a new relationship with God, and it is also a new identity. Paul pretty much tells us that Christians are those who have been adopted by God. So let us read these three verses again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God 
they are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The center of Paul's argument here is the difference between the spirit of slavery, which brings fear, and the spirit of adoption, which makes us cry out to the Father. The opposite of fear is crying out to the Father, like a child cries out to his father. When we were still in the state of being unrighteous, not being connected to Christ, being unable to kill our sins, we were under the spirit of slavery, slavery to sin. We were slaves and we had to live in constant fear of failure, of hate, of judgment. Am I fake? Am I a Christian? Does God love me? These, Christians are these questions are fueled by fear that when you're a Christian, you have received the spirit of adoption. Paul shows us that we don't need to ask these questions if in fact we are Christians. We have received another spirit. We have become sons and daughters of God through adoption. And in fact, throughout the Bible, God's work of salvation from sin and evil is always with the purpose of making people sons and daughters. Maybe you've realized that. For example, when God called Israel out of Egypt, he called them a son. Adam was God's 